0: morning, everybody. So I was sitting down to do homework with my oldest son, Levi. He's six. Uh, and it was math homework. It was pretty simple. So he was kind of working through the, the math part, no problem. What we spent most of our time working on, though, was his penmanship, because he has unfortunately inherited my bad handwriting. So he wrote his name on the top of his page. And then we had to erase some letters and rewrite them, because they were illegible. And then he would write his numbers. We'd have to erase some of them and try again because we couldn't really understand what they were. And he kept assuring me throughout this whole process that he was just writing things the creative way. And I had to remind him that creativity doesn't matter if nobody can understand what you're writing. So eventually he acquiesced and he started to write his numbers and his letters the the correct and legible way. And I really felt like we were making some progress until the next day he brought home his work from school and all of those creative letters and numbers showed back up even though I felt like we had really done it the right way the night before. But this isn't uncommon, because this has kind of been our routine for the last several weeks, where we will work on certain letters and numbers and how to write them the correct way, and he'll get it, and it looks great, and then the next day, he brings home his schoolwork, and it's like nothing changed at all. And it's a little discouraging, because it makes me think, like, I know the work and the time is worth it, but it, it's discouraging because it's like, is it, though? Is it worth it? Because things aren't changing, and it doesn't really seem like our our work is is working or making a difference in any way. And I know someday it will, but it's just a relatable thing. I'm sure you felt that way before. Maybe you've felt that way about something with your own children or maybe some completely different part of your life. Uh, maybe there, there was a relationship that you were trying to mend or to strengthen, and you're putting yourself out there and you're trying to do everything you can to make smooth roads and to, you know improve that bond, but it just doesn't seem to matter, like all your efforts seem to go in vain because what you're doing just isn't working and things aren't improving. Or maybe you're trying to get ahead in life and so you're putting in some extra hours and putting in some overtime and really trying to go the extra mile or, or maybe even started a side hustle, you know, you got this extra thing going on because you want to try to get ahead a little bit and then life happens and all that extra income just gets wiped out because there was a car repair or something like that. Life zigged when you zagged. It's discouraging. Because it seems like maybe things just aren't working out. And when things in life don't work out, it causes us to second guess, maybe even question some things. And God is not immune from that second guessing and questioning. Sometimes when life doesn't break our way, we question him. It's not uncommon for people to second guess. Is is he really good? Does he care about this situation? Is he still there? Is he working? Because it doesn't really seem like it. Otherwise, things in life would probably go a little different, we think. And that's the, the situation and the circumstance that we're just going to mull over this morning and our time together. This message is part two of a series called A Year-ish with Jesus, in which we're working our way through the Gospel of Matthew, which, as it turns out, you can't do in a year. So we're going to do it in a year and some extra months. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 1. If you have your Bibles with you, I want to encourage you to open up to Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 18. If you don't have your Bible, you can follow along on screen behind, or you can download the FCC Monmouth app to your mobile device, tap the Sunday button in the bottom right-hand corner, followed by our sermon notes, and you'll find our passage pulled up ready for you to engage with and get the most out of our time. So our story this morning is very familiar. It's one we've likely heard many, many times, which sort of puts us at a disadvantage, because the frequency with which we've heard it can kind of overshadow just how odd it really is. Uh, this is not something that the original audience of this story, first century Israelites, would have suffered. They fully recognize just how strange this little story was. We're talking about the story of the virgin conception as told by Matthew. So let's take a look at that story and let's take a look at how Matthew tells this story, not just to us, but to his original audience in the first century. Because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So this is the story of the virgin conception. Like we said, it's one we've likely heard many, many times around this time of year. Joseph, who is pledged to be married to Mary, uh, and in that sense, that word means they legally were married, they didn't live together, they hadn't um, um, consummated the marriage or anything like that, he learns that Mary is pregnant, which is problematic because they have not yet consummated the marriage. And while we have a lot up on them as far as scientific knowledge goes, even then they understood full well how babies were made, And so Joseph is very troubled by this, understandably so. And so he decides to divorce his wife, which most people probably would in that circumstance. And then this angel appears and says, no, 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 Joseph, don't worry about it. She didn't cheat on you. She's not been unfaithful. This is a baby conceived by the Holy Spirit. This is God's baby. You don't need to worry about it. And Joseph believes this story. And it's understandable because he had a very powerful personal experience And when we have powerful personal experiences like that, it oftentimes is enough to convince us of things that might otherwise be unbelievable. A good example of this, uh, I met a guy this week named Wayne. And Wayne is somebody who grew up uh, in Maryland in a strange, his family practiced a strange mixture of Judaism and New Age belief, which is just a, if you study it, that's a weird concoction, but that's how he was raised. Wayne himself kind of got to the point where he didn't believe in a God at all. He just kind of was going through life. And so he pursued pleasure and he pursued what would, he thought, satisfy him through different relationships with various men throughout his life. Uh, And he was never really satisfied. And then about a year ago, he didn't go into a great deal about it, but he, he said he just had this experience where he knew in that moment not only was God real, but it was the God of the Bible as found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it was such a powerful, undeniable experience that even though he would spent his entire life denying that that was even a possibility, he was convinced in that moment, gave his life to Christ, became a believer in Jesus. It was a wonderful, wonderful testimony. And that's not even the craziest part about Wayne's story, which we'll hear a little later. But it's just a good example of sometimes we can have those personal, powerful experiences that convince us of things we might otherwise not be able to believe. And Joseph had one of those. But what if you weren't Joseph? What if you were like Joseph's buddy? And one day after work, you're sitting down to have a skein of milk, and Joseph's telling you this story of, hey, you know, my fiance's pregnant, but it's God's baby, so it's totally cool. She didn't cheat on me at all. What are you going to think, right, when he tells you that? You're going to think, this is the worst cover-up story in the history of adultery, and my poor friend is just so delusional, he doesn't want to face facts. That's how everyone else in the universe would hear that story, because let's face it, it's weird. And that's how first century Israelites that Matthew was writing to would have heard that story. And that's why Matthew appeals to something beyond personal experience. He appeals to what we're going to call today, the prophetic witness. The prophetic witness, when we use that term, what we mean by that is the voice of the Old Testament prophets and what they had to say about God's plans and God's work. What is their testimony? And Matthew, writing to first century Jewish people, he appeals to the prophetic witness, not just in this story, but actually to five different prophetic utterances over the first two chapters of his gospel to try to explain and legitimize some of the admittedly strange things that surround the birth of Christ. And in doing so, he says, look, these stories, they may sound a little odd, but they're not without precedent. God kind of called it out a long, long time ago through his prophets, And even more than that, he's saying because all of these weird things happened to this same person, it kind of speaks to the legitimacy of who Jesus is. I mean, all of these prophecies speaking about him and his virgin birth and all these other stories, it really is kind of an amazing thing that Matthew can sit down and look at the Old Testament and listen to the prophetic witness and give it to the first century Jewish people and say, look, this is worth listening to. But as amazing as that is, there's a lot more significance to these prophetic witnesses ...than just proof texts and evidence that these stories aren't so weird. There's actually a very significant message that's being spoken not just to those first century people... ...but to you and I today that still matters a great deal for our lives. In order to appreciate that, we have to understand how this mattered to them long ago a little bit better. So when we look at this prophetic witness, what we start to see is that first of all... ...it speaks to the fullness of God's work through Jesus... This was something that was really important to the Israelite people. We'll explain why it was so significant in a little bit, but let's just look at what we mean. Let's look more specifically at this prophetic voice. This is Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. Its prophecy says, The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is a prophecy that was spoken from God through the prophet Isaiah to King Ahaz of Judah, Uh, in the book of Isaiah, chapter 7. It was about 700-ish years before Jesus. And there is a a specific context surrounding this and a reason why Isaiah says this. You can read it yourself in Isaiah chapter 7 some other time. But the very abbreviated uh, version of it is this. King Ahaz was unfaithful to the Lord. There were enemy nations that were about to invade Judah And instead of seeking God, he sought refuge and help from Egypt, uh, an adversary that he was not supposed to seek help from because he didn't trust God. And God even came to him and said, look, just ask me for a sign. I will prove to you that I'm trustworthy. And Ahaz said, "Nah, I'm good. So the prophet Isaiah comes to King Ahaz and he says in short, look, I'll give you a sign anyway, but this time it's not going to be a good sign. He says, this young woman, and the Hebrew word that's used there is is a word that can mean a young woman of marriageable age, not necessarily a virgin, but that's usually a maiden was a virgin. There's a whole body of literature about that. But he says, this this young woman, your wife, she's going to become pregnant. And by the time this child is born and reaches a certain age, he is going to be a sign to you. But it's not a good sign, it's going to be a bad sign, because about the time he reaches two or three The nations that you fear are going to be trampled and an all-powerful, even worse enemy is going to be at your doorstep, the nation of Assyria. And then you will know that I am with you because you will be deposed, but this child of yours, he will be the salvation of Israel. And when we look at the history of the timeline, and we actually have a pretty good picture of ancient history in this, this era, and we look at when Assyria came into the region and we look at when King Ahaz's son, King Hezekiah was born, it all kind of lines up. And if you know the story of King Hezekiah, he actually was a good and faithful king that did somewhat work to restore the nation of Judah to faithfulness. And so, for that reason, many Jews, both ancient and modern, see King Hezekiah as the fulfillment of this prophecy, because he was. Now, some of us might be saying, well, wait a minute, Jesus is the fulfillment of this prophecy. Let's not get ahead of ourselves yet. Hezekiah fulfilled this prophecy, and we shouldn't be surprised by that because this was a prophecy spoken from an Old Testament prophet to Old Testament people about an Old Testament circumstance that was happening in their Old Testament time, it would make sense that God would want to speak a message to those people about what was happening. Otherwise, it wouldn't really be relevant if it was about some future unknown event that they were going to have no contact with. It would be like somebody sitting down and writing a phone book. You know, just writing down names and numbers and addresses, just writing it page after page after page in the year 1776. Like we just signed the Declaration of Independence, and somebody says, You know what this new nation needs? Phone book. To which the Congregation or Continental Congress would aptly respond, What's a phone book? And he would say, Well, it's a book filled with names and phone numbers and addresses, and and you can call them up and talk to them. And they would say, Oh, interesting. What's a telephone? Well, in a hundred years from now, in or 1876, there's going to be this box that you can kind of touch numbers on and talk to people long distances. And 200 years after that, this book, whoa, it's going to be real important for you. And then about a hundred years after that, nobody's going to want it and it's just going to go in the trash can, right? It wouldn't make a whole lot of sense for somebody to write a phone book in 1776 because it's useless. It's devoid of any meaning. It doesn't speak to their lives. It doesn't help them in any way. It's just going to sit there purposeless for 300 years. That's a silly scenario, isn't it? But sometimes that's how we view the Old Testament prophets. As if they spoke these messages from God that were completely devoid of meaning for hundreds of years, and yet for some reason they just kept passing it along generation after generation like, well, I don't know what it means, but somebody somewhere someday is going to find it real important. That's silly. Now, this prophecy spoke to the Israelite people in that moment about what they were dealing with. All of these Old Testament prophecies attributed to Jesus speak to the Israelites in their Old Testament time. So then why is Matthew writing it down here as if Jesus fulfills this? And this is where the theology comes in and why Matthew is using them in such a special way. He's writing to his own people, the Jewish people of the first century, and he's saying, hey, do you guys remember in our history when God worked in these wonderful, miraculous ways, when he made promises to his people and he fulfilled them? Well, he's doing all that again. He's doing the exact same kind of thing in this person, Jesus. In fact, he's doing it in an even fuller way through Jesus. Yeah, Hezekiah was great. He was a sign to the people that God was with them. But this Jesus, he is really at work among his people. And he is really a sign that God is with them in such a tremendous way. The fullness of God's work is experienced in this person, Jesus. That's a theme that starts here in chapter 2 and that Matthew is going to develop for the next 26 chapters to show that the fullness of God and the fullness of his work and the fullness of his promises are experienced in this Messiah. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. And when you consider the work that Jesus was going to do, that the fullness of this work was going to be experienced through him, this is a phenomenal message. And actually the angel tells us the specific job that Jesus is going to do. Back in verse 21, it says, she will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Now God had saved his people from their sins in the past. He gave them the sacrificial system. They could come bring their offerings to the altar, to the high priest, and he would sprinkle blood on the Ark of the Covenant. It would make atonement for their sins, and the sins of the people would be rolled forward and guilt not attributed to them. He even saved his people from the consequence of their sins in the past. In the book of Judges, my, my small group's doing a study through the book of Judges right now. It's filled with the sins of Israel. Where the Israelite people forsake God and abandon him and follow idols. And as a result of their sin, these oppressive rulers come in and and suppress them and, and treat them harshly. And the people cry out and in his mercy, God raises up a savior and liberates them from their bondage. He had saved the people from the consequences of their sin. But what Matthew is saying in the introduction of Jesus and who he is is that all of that, it's repeated in Christ, but we experience it in its fullest sense. Yes, God had saved people from their sins through sacrifice, but in Jesus, God had made an even fuller atonement. Yes, He had saved them from the consequences of their sin in Jesus, but in, in the Old Testament, but in Jesus, He provides this fuller liberation and a greater salvation through a greater and more fuller Savior. Matthew's whole point here is to say, look guys, if you want to experience God with us, it's not found solely in the past. it's experienced today and most extensively in the person of Jesus. Now that's a powerful message. But that's not all that this prophetic witness speaks to. There's actually maybe a more significant message that it speaks to these first century Jewish people. It's a powerful reminder that God was at work at all. Now that may seem crazy because these are first century Jewish people. We think surely they recognize that God was at work with them. But we forget something. Again, because sometimes we're so familiar with our Bibles and the stories within it we sometimes forget the distance and the story that lays between the Old Testament and the New. For us, it's a simple matter of just flipping a page. One second, we're at the end of the book of Malachi. Half second later, we're at the beginning of the book of Matthew. And we seldom stop to realize and remember there are 400 years of silence between those two books. Now, that's not to say history wasn't happening. There's a lot of history happening. And there's a large body of literature that records the history of the Jewish people from the end of Malachi to the beginning of the first century. But both Jews and Christians today recognize it's not inspired scripture, and the prophets do not speak during this time. And it was a time of great suffering where the Jewish people were conquered and traded between empires like Pokemon cards. It was a time where the Jewish people fought wars against enemies, both foreign and domestic. It was a time where they were eventually taken over by Rome and oppressed and taxed heavily into poverty and eked out a meager existence where they wanted just a modicum of dignity. It was a hard time for 400 years. And during that time, like we said, the prophets didn't speak. God was silent. And the people wondered and they questioned, God, where are you at? What are you doing? Are you still with us? Are you still at work? Have you left? It's easy to understand how they might feel that way. When you don't see or hear from somebody for a long time, it's a natural assumption that they just left. I had kind of a funny story along those lines that happened this week. Uh, Levi, my oldest, who I mentioned, he had pink eye on Monday. And so I called the doctor's office, and they scheduled a 7.40 a.m. appointment, which was 20 minutes later. And so we threw on our clothes and scarfed down some breakfast and rushed out the door. And we were only five minutes late, which we were very proud of. But we got to the exam room and and we spoke to the doctor. And she said, yeah, he's got a pink eye. While you're here, do you want him to get his flu shot? We hadn't got it yet. And my wife and I had actually spoken about it last night. We need to do that. So I said, yeah, let's just get it done. So she went through the exam and everything. We talked for a minute. And then she left the room and brought back some paperwork. He gave it to me and then left again. And I just sort of assumed we were done. So I put on Levi's coat, I got my coat, and we walked out the door, and we got to the car, and we drove home. And it wasn't until I was tucking him in a bed that night that I remembered, you never got your flu shot. And I realized, like, when she left, she didn't say anything, she didn't give us any instruction, but she probably was out talking to the nurse, doing her job, like, hey, you need to go get the vial and fill the syringe, and the nurse is out there prepping it, doing all the stuff she's supposed to do, and we're just shaying right out of the clinic, right? Like... But here's the thing, when you don't have any instructions, and you don't see or hear from somebody for some time, it's just sort of a natural assumption, they left. That's how the Jewish people in the first century were feeling after 400 years of silence. And then Matthew's whole point in bringing these prophetic voices to the forefront is to say, no, 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 God didn't go anywhere. Jesus. Just like he worked in the Old Testament, just as he prophesied and spoke and saved and rescued, he is working and speaking and saving and rescuing right now. This person, Jesus, and his ministry is a continuation of God's long efforts in bringing you to salvation. It's the continuation of God's work. He didn't go anywhere. And that's a pretty powerful message, to recognize that in this moment when these people are hurting so much and they're questioning, is God here? Because we don't see the efforts or that, well, we don't see the kind of work we expected. Yes, he is right there in the thick of it, in the middle of it, working, maybe in ways we didn't expect, but nonetheless, with us, all the same, just as the angel said. And that's the message that those first century people needed to hear and that you and I oftentimes need to hear in our own lives today. We don't have to be Jewish to appreciate this. Because we all at times in our lives have likely had our own little 400 years of silence, it feels like. Whenever life zigs, when we zagged, or life doesn't break our way. When we experience those discouragements and disappointments that we spoke about earlier. When your family's a mess. When somebody else's life just looks easier than yours for some reason. Why does everything go their way? and Why does all the junk fall on us? It's easy to become discouraged, but it's in those moments... When this prophetic voice, this story of Jesus, speaks to us in the thick of it, God did not go anywhere during the discouraging seasons. His work continues. His work still is experienced today. And just like back then, the work of God is still most fully experienced in the gospel of Jesus. Our friend Wayne, who we spoke about earlier, he's a great testimony to this. I mentioned Wayne had come to Christ about a year ago, and he was growing in his faith, and it came at just the right time, but not in a good way. It was shortly after he uh, accepted Christ and had this powerful experience. uh, Wayne's life sort of caught up with him, Uh, and because of how he lived and and his pursuits, Wayne found out that he was HIV positive, uh, was diagnosed kind of late, so it actually had developed into full-blown AIDS. And so for the last six months, Wayne has been in and out of the hospital quite a bit. But he wanted to travel to Maryland. He lives in Oregon. He wanted to travel to Maryland to see his family. So he traveled out there, he got there. When he arrived, he got sick again, landed himself in the hospital, and was there where his family and his friends came and visited him. And like I said, his family grew up with a strange concoction of religious beliefs, half Judaism, half New Age, zero room for Christianity. In their eyes, Christianity was a problem. Uh, Jesus wasn't somebody to follow or revere, and certainly Christianity, as we know it, is oppressive. And so they encouraged Wayne to leave his faith, to resume his life as an openly gay man, because that's, that's who he is. That's who they knew him to be. And he shouldn't deny that because of some strange belief he has. He's in the hospital with AIDS, and this is what his family brings to him. And after he refused, he said, I can never go back because I've seen the light. His family cut him off and left and doesn't want anything to do with him. Again, in the hospital with AIDS. And so Wayne, traveling back through, his friend had him a a bus ticket to Minneapolis where he's going to get on a train and ride back to Oregon. he just needs a little bit of food for a couple days. So we were talking, and what impressed me so much was that Wayne didn't choose to be discouraged in this moment. He didn't question if God was still at work in his life, even though it would have been understandable, given the discouragement he experienced. Instead, Wayne could see God at work all over his life and his experience through the gospel. He said, God is the one who opened my eyes and showed me the light. God is the one who rescued me and redeems me. God is the one who is going to welcome me at his gates when this body inevitably gives out. And as Wayne talked, I could see God at work in his life in different ways. God was the one that was changing this guy's heart and mind to look at life differently and to see with a different perspective. God was the one who was sustaining him and encouraging him as he traveled across the country to go witness to his family, and as he traveled back to Oregon to try to share the gospel with his friends and past associates before it was, well, there was no more time. God had given this guy a new purpose and a new lease on life, and yes, his body was wasting away, and yes, his family had left him. That didn't mean God wasn't at work and Wayne in powerful ways changing him and shaping him and forming in him the newness of life. Oftentimes, gang, that is the powerful work of God that we experience in our lives. Sometimes we expect God's work to look like it did in the Old Testament, where waters part or armies topple. But what is really of more benefit to God? Is it to part some oceans, or is it to transform people to live with him forever? Is it it to form this world to appease my temporary will, or is it to shape you and I to fit into his eternal will? Is it to make our days on this earth, our few days on this earth, a little easier and simpler, or is it to change us into the kind of people that live eternally with him in his presence? There's a greater work happening in us through the gospel than anything God accomplished in the Old Testament. He is performing miracles, but it's not miraculous manna from heaven. It's raising dead people back to life making sinners into righteous saints, giving us new perspective, a new lease on life, a new purpose and a new mission and a new calling. There is a powerful work happening in you today, oftentimes through the discouraging moments of life. And we experience that powerful work of God most fully through the person of Jesus Christ and the way he is changing us and making us new again. And we may be tempted to see that as some sort of consolation prize because life is still difficult and isn't going my way. But again, what is of greater benefit and what is the more difficult task? Is it for the creator of the world to part the seas Or is it for him to reach into our lives, even the difficulties and the discouragements of our lives, and work them in such a way that they cause new life to spring up within us? There's a powerful transformation happening in us through Jesus. So when you experience those discouraging moments of life, I would encourage you and plead with you, don't see those as evidence of silence. Look at those as opportunities for the voice of God to speak powerfully into you and to work in you, not through miracle and not through making all the loose ends come together, but through the power of Jesus to change you and shape you into the kind of person he always dreams you to be, a person who transcends this world and its difficulties and stands at his gates with Wayne, changed and transformed through the power of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the encouraging words of Matthew that remind us that you are always with us, that your work never ceases. And though it may, may not look like what we expect or even what we want in those moments, it is ultimately for our good and our benefit. You do more in us than we could ever dream. And you shape our hearts and our minds, our wills, and you conform us to Jesus. It's in him that we experience the fullness of your grace and the fullness of your love It is in being shaped like him that we experience the kind of peace we always long for and the purpose and calling we always seek after. And so it's my hope and my prayer for us, those of us who are in those moments of discouragement today or those who will soon face them, that you would speak into our hearts through the gospel, that you would remind us that through Jesus you have and continue to work powerfully in this world. And I ask that we cling to that work, that we be encouraged by it as we pass through these storms. It's in his name we pray these things. Amen.